Good morning, everybody. Fourth and fifth graders, you're dismissed to your class, fourth and fifth graders. For the rest of us, we're going to continue. This is our third week that we've been in a series entitled Shipwreck. And just by way of review, we began by talking about the reality that sometimes our lives end up being in a shipwreck. Meaning that we boarded a boat to go on a vacation or a voyage that was supposed to end up there. And somewhere along the way, we ended up here. And this is not where we intended to be. That everything around us began to sink around us and we never made that final destination of there. And in the midst of a shipwreck, then what do you do? How do you respond out of a shipwreck? And we said the very first week that, number one, your mental reaction to the shipwreck will depend largely, uh, will be a determining factor in regards to your survival. So if you're going to survive this shipwreck, how you mentally react to it is very important. So we talk about things like remaining calm. And even in the midst of the shipwreck, in the midst of being there in open waters, having faith that in the end you will prevail. And even this might even be the defining moment of my life, even though I can't see it at the moment or feel it at the moment, that I will in the end prevail and at the exact same time confront the most brutal facts of our situation, no matter how difficult they might be. We also looked at the Apostle Paul's shipwreck in Acts chapter 27 and talked about courage and not having fear and having great faith in God. And then last week, we talked about the most immediate danger that you face in the midst of a shipwreck is not the lack of food or water, as critical as that might be, but your greatest danger is exposure. And what is true of the ocean is also true in life. In life's shipwrecks, our greatest danger is the exposure we'll find ourselves in the midst of it to Satan's temptations and lies that will come against us in ways that just don't happen when you're not in the midst or context of a shipwreck, to the discouragement or doubt or even just plain stupidity that's, that, that calls us and tempts us in the midst of shipwrecks. And what you need then in the midst is protection and covering. And we said last week that God himself will be our protection and covering that the word of God will be for us a protection and covering, and then people and structures that God has placed in our life to be sort of like umbrellas over us will be for us protection and covering. Now, I want to begin this morning's lesson by sharing with you what I believe to be the greatest shipwreck survival story in history. It begins in 1914 with a man named Sir, Sir Ernest Shackleton who fell in love with Antarctica in the region of the South Pole. And his dream was to be the first man to ever reach the South Pole. And so he, uh, he was on two other adventures in that feat and in the end had to turn around because of the weather conditions and the ice and never made it. And in the end, it was the Norwegians that beat him, which is a lesson to all of us. Never get in a race on the sea with Norwegians. They always win. But Sir Ernest Shackleton was from Britain, and he then began to have another adventure and another dream where he wanted to be the first man to be able to walk across the entire continent of Antarctica. And so in 1914, he assembled a crew, and he did so by putting an ad in the British paper that said this, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, and long months of complete darkness. There will be constant danger, and a safe return is doubtful. Looking for the bravest of the brave, there will be honor and recognition in case of success. And he had thousands of men respond and reply to the ad. And in the end, 26 were selected to be with Sir Ernest Shackleton on the ship The Endurance 
for this voyage. Now, at the same time, World War I was just now taking place and getting underway. And he offered both his men and his boat to the British government in the war effort. And he finally got one word from the government telling him, proceed, meaning you can go on. So Sir Ernest Shackleton left South America and headed towards Antarctica. And he was within 60 nautical miles of the continent of Antarctica when he met his and encountered his old nemesis, the ice. And so there in the boat, the Endurance, which was built, by the way, to be able to make its way through the ice and at times even crushing through it and separating it through the leaves, through the leaves of the ice flows that came together, Shackleton made his way until he was about 60 nautical miles away and he became completely trapped and stuck. So the men got out of the boat and they began to chip away at the ice and saw away at the ice, hoping to maybe make it through the impasse. And as the temperatures got colder and colder because they're in Antarctica he quickly realized that he was stuck. And so for 11, listen, 11 months, Sir Ernest Shackleton and the crew of 26 men were stuck, frozen in the Antarctica on their boat, the Endurance. And so you could see here they are, they decide they had to camp there for 11 months. And so they're making a fire. Here's the crew right here. To pass the time away, they would do things like play soccer. But Sir Ernest Shackleton knew for 11 months of doing almost nothing, the morale of the crew will quickly deteriorate. So he devised a plan and strategy to always have very strict assignments of what work they were supposed to do, getting so detailed that at night when they got a hot beverage, which was a luxury, every night he had a, very, he had a strict seating rotation that every day it circulated so that every man would have a turn to sit next to the stove to keep themselves warm during the evening, and they were there for 11 months. But here's what Shackleton knew, and what the crew knew but never said out loud, is that at any moment those ice flows as they come together could snap up and eventually crush the boat and the ship, the Endurance. And the problem is, is no one knows where they're at. Like, there's no rescue on the continent of Antarctica. They have no radio. They have no wire. They've got no, I mean, no one knows where they're at. There's no possibility that someone else is going to show up to rescue them from their fate. After 11 months, what happened was that the ice flows did come together, and they began to crush the boat until it finally, here it is stuck in the ice, to look like this. And then eventually, over time, it sank altogether. Before it did, they had to remove the supplies, and during that year of time, as they were waiting and camping and those sorts of things, they brought with them 69 sledding dogs that all of them, in the end, they ran out of food and had to be shot, and they ate the dogs, and they had one cat, that the owner of the cat was bitter at the captain for the rest of his life for killing his cat, even though it felt like that was a certain thing. You just can't have any more, Sarah, you just can't have any more mouths to feed with the cats, and so the inevitable happened. And so what happens eventually, they took off some supplies and three out of their four lifeboats, and Shackleton decided they were going to try to cross the Antarctica to try to find help and rescue. They had to get to a place where they could get back into open sea. And so they began to pull. You can see a picture here. They are pulling a lifeboat across the Antarctica, but they were found that the conditions were so severe. I'm, we're talking like 50 degrees below zero at certain times with, with blizzard and gale force winds that they couldn't go very far and make it. And so finally Shackleton knew this isn't going to work. And so they once again hunkered down, and they were afloat in the ocean on a huge ice float for months. Just imagine, just between nothing between you and the ocean. And as it got warmer, they began to realize that their ice float was shrinking. And so finally, after a certain amount of time, they realized their only hope was to get in these lifeboats and try to make it somehow. And so when the ice finally melted deep at, or to a, a shallow enough part, they broke through it, and all the, all the, uh, they got onto the boats, and they began to travel until they finally made it through, I mean, hurricanes, blizzard, you name it, until they finally made it to Elephant Island. 
Elephant Island is where they landed. It was the first time that the men had sound, found solid ground in 19 months. And so when they got on Elephant Island, they were so excited just to be like we're not in the ocean sinking. We were actually on an island until that night a blizzard came in and they were all miserable again. They had overturned the lifeboat and they made a hut in the lifeboat where they lived trying to hunt down penguin and seal for food because that's all that they had. And so for months they were in this situation of finally Shackleton knew our only hope is to once again get in a boat and try to find rescue and help from the island of South Georgia because he knew there was a Norwegian whaling station there and it was 800 miles away, 800 miles away. So Shackleton, a great danger to himself, selected, of course, himself and five of his best crew and they boarded a 22-foot lifeboat and they made their way to, to the South Georgia Island for help and rescue 800 miles away. Now here's the deal, they had very few instruments by which to gauge where they were going and if they were off by even one degree, that would be 60 miles off, and Elephant Island was only 10 miles wide. So this is all the leeway that they had, and after two and a half weeks, think about this, being two and a half weeks in a boat with five other guys in the most miserable conditions, they finally landed on South Georgia Island. But when they landed, they didn't see anybody. There was nobody there. That the part of the island that they landed on, it was the other side of the island, an unchartered island in Antarctica that they had to cross to find help. And so Shackleton knew three of, his, uh, three of the six guys that were in that lifeboat were just incapacitated. So he left them there at the shore, and three walked for 36 hours straight to make it to finally, just going over one mountain to see another one, another mountain to see another one, to finally they saw the whaling station on the other part of South Georgia Island. When they showed up, they finally were rescued. They got to have hot meals and all those sorts of things and shave and get all cleaned up. But the big thing for Shackleton was, how do I rescue my men? three of whom are on this side of the island, and the rest are back on Elephant Island. And so he had three attempts. All three failed because once again he encountered ice until finally the Chilean government lent him a boat, and on his fourth attempt he was able to rescue his men and make it to Elephant Island where he found after four months, they had been waiting four months for Sir, Sir Ernest to come back, when he arrived, not a single man had died. After two years and some of the most horrendous I mean, situations and circumstances, every single last one of them, Shackleton was able to rescue and bring home. And at the end of the story, what I see as being so key in their survival was Shackleton's ability to continue to move forward no matter what. He was always taking action. He was always assessing what was going on, and at every critical juncture, he did something. With the best of his knowledge and experience and even the counsel of other experienced sailors, he was always developing a plan and he was always doing something. Now, not everything worked, not everything was right, but he made immediate assessments, developed a plan, and acted quickly. And here's why I think this is so important. Because for most of us, in the midst of a shipwreck, in the midst of those circumstances, when you know there's no hope that anyone's going to come to rescue you, and it's a blizzard after a blizzard, and it feels like you've been wet and frozen for months, Every one of us has the temptation just to shut down and to quit. That everyone else has this temptation just to go, I just, I give up. And now in fairness, no one else had command of the ship like Sir Ernest Shackleton, and it wasn't their job, but he was always making decisions. He knew how far to hike, when to rest, when to eat, how much to eat. He knew when the morale of his men were going down and needed boosted by some hot cocoa or an extra ration of food. He knew when it was time to abandon ship and when, to great risk and danger to himself, to sail on a small boat 800 miles away. Most of us are crushed under the weight of the shipwreck. 
We just mentally collapse. We become physically paralyzed, so to speak, become catatonic in ways. We find that in the midst of our life shipwrecks, when our marriage is gone or our finances are gone or our health is gone or this situation shipwrecks us, in the end we don't know what to do but watch a lot of TV and eat junk food or take up drinking or see if we can't do a marathon nap session for 16 hours a day or we fall into deep depression or we'll spend hours of our day on the internet pretending that things around us aren't really falling apart. With numb resignation, we'll give ourselves to the new familiar that's now our life. And this path of least resistance, wherever the current takes us, it takes us, whether we intended to ever go there or not. The nature of shipwrecks, more often than not, crushes the spirit of a person and leaves them paralyzed to take action. But what I would say is this, and you should commit this passage to memory. Second Timothy chapter 1, let me give this to you, and, and you should write it down because someday you're going to be in a shipwreck and, and you're going to need to say this out loud. Second Timothy chapter 1 verse 7. For the Spirit of God, the Spirit that God gave us, does not make us timid. Now, some of your translations say, did not give us a spirit of fear. I like that too. Didn't give us a spirit of fear, but it gives us power and love and self-discipline. Now, this is important because when you find yourself in life shipwreck, you want to be able to say right back to whatever it is you see sinking around you, oh, no, listen, this is not a time for me to move to some catatonic state to curl up in some fetal position and cry my way through this. This is a time for me to act to have strength and to not have... But listen, the Spirit of God did not give us a spirit of fear, but rather one of power and love and self-discipline. I'm not just going to resign myself to this. I'm not just going to curl up paralyzed by my circumstances. I'm going to rise up and I'm going to act. I'm going to do something and I'm going to survive because I am here and I need to be there. And you could see throughout history, men and women who rose up where in most normal circumstances would have crushed somebody else. For example, let me, Nelson Mandela. You all know the story of Nelson Mandela who went on to be the great president of South Africa. But prior to that, did you know he was incarcerated unjustly as a political prisoner for 27 years on Robben Island? 27 years. I tell you that, just that in itself would crush a normal person. Just the paralysis of there's no hope, there's no way I'm getting out. But every day, Nelson Mandela had some inspiration he took from a poem called Invictus by William Ernest Henley. And he wrote it down on a scrap sheet of paper, and he read it to himself often, day after day after day. It ends with this phrase, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And what the poem is trying to communicate is, in spite of the fact that I find myself in a prison cell, even for 27 years, I'm telling you, this will not crush my soul. That I will not allow this to allow me to cower under and to just to crawl up in a fetal position and cry in a shipwreck. There's no pretending. My journey didn't end up where I wanted it to go. But I'm not just going to passively sit by and let either the elements or the circumstances around me or the current or the sea life to have their way with me. I'm at least going to do something. It's sort of like Nike's famous slogan, right? Just do it. That moment when we rise up and say, that's it, I've had it. I'm not going to let CPS dismantle my family. I'm going to rise up to the challenge and I'm going to change the conditions of my house. I'm not going to go under any longer and let me and my children be carried out to sea because my ex-husband and his new girlfriend have decided they think this is what should happen with my kids. And I know it's not best for them. I'm going to rise up and do something. I'm not going to let my stepmother tell me any longer that I'm not capable of this or I'm not good enough for this or I'm too stupid. And all those tapes that keep playing in my head, I'm not going to allow it anymore. I'm going to rise up and I'm going to do something. 
I'm not going to let Satan any longer tempt me in both my mood or my behavior to be vengeful in my responses. I'm going to rise up in the midst of this shipwreck, and I'm going to do something. I'm not going to let even my daily routine, which I can't stand any longer, dictate the kind of job that I have that I really do hate. I'm going to go back and I'm going to take a class or I'm going to go back to school and get the degree or I'm going to rework my resume and I'm going to do something about this. I'm not just going to curl up in a ball and just take it. And listen, students, if you bomb the test, listen, just say, oh, no, I'm not letting that dictate my future. I'm going to study hard. I'll get a tutor if I have to. And I'm going to take the test again. I'm going to score on that SAT or ACT, what I'm supposed to from the beginning. I will not rest here. I'm supposed to be there. And it's that moment like what Sir Ernest Shackleton did by having the ability to make quick assessments and formulate a plan and act. Now, here's what I'd say to you. I mean, he's not without total... He has tools. That his, he's got maps. He's got charts. He's got nautical chronometers. I mean, he has tools. I'm not saying just do something to stay busy. That's not going to rescue you. Whatever resources and tools that God has given to us by way of the spirit that dwells within us or the word of God or the community and church that's around us, I'm going to take my measurements and I'm going to make a careful assessment, but I'm going to do something. Now, in the very first week, we talked about, remember the Apostle Paul, his shipwreck in Acts 27? Now, we never finished the story, by the way. We just kind of read the first part of it. But this morning, I'd like to go back to it. And I'd like to finish it so you could see what I think this is all about. It's, if you want to turn your Bibles, I'll be in Acts chapter 27 is where I'm going to be. I'm going to be in verse 27. Let's finish. Here's what actually, like, here's where we left off. God said to Paul, listen, everyone's going to survive, but you're going to get in a wreck. Like, the ship is going to run aground and break up. So Paul knows this is going to happen. He says to the men, be courageous, don't have fear, let's have faith in God. But I want you to read now, here's what actually happened at the end of the story with the shipwreck. Verse 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. So they took soundings, and they found that the water was 120 feet deep. So a short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. And fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks... They dropped four anchors from the stern, and they prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going, uh, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. And then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Now, could you imagine that moment? Cut the lifeboats. <laughs> okay. Watching the lifeboat fly away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and gone without food, and you haven't eaten anything. So he handed them a Snickers bar because you're not you when you're hungry. (laughs) Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head, which is good news to me. And after he said this, he took some bread, he gave thanks to God in front of them all, then he broke it, dipped it in Alfredo sauce, and began to eat. Okay, I made up the Alfredo sauce part, but this is my story here. Verse 36, they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Together, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea, and when daylight came... 
they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time, they untied the ropes that held the rudders, and they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made it for the beach. But the ship stuck a sandbar, struck a sandbar, and they ran aground. And the, and the bow struck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. So the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion who wanted to spare Paul's life had kept, the, kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to go ahead and jump overboard and get to land. And the rest were to find planks or other pieces of the ship. And in this way, listen, in this way, everyone reached land safely. Now, if you read this section, what you'll hear in the narrative is a lot of action. A lot of herbs. They took soundings. They dropped anchors. They prayed. They cut the lifeboats. They ate. They lightened the ship. They cut the anchors. They released the ropes around the rudders. They hoisted the sail. They jumped overboard, and they swam. And then it ends with this word, in this way, everyone reached land in safety. In this way. Well, what way? In taking action. Just as we said in week one that your chance of surviving a shipwreck will depend on how you mentally react to it. Now in this third week, I would say your chance of survival in a shipwreck of life will depend on how you physically react to it. What are you going to do now? And how are you going to respond out of it? And Christians can be strange about stuff like this. If we could be honest, right? Let's just be honest. And I want you to hear me carefully because I'm going to say some things that you can take the wrong way and I don't want you to here. But just think about what if the only thing Paul did was call a prayer meeting? Like, just, like the only thing he did, well, let's either call a prayer meeting together. And I know, listen, I'm for prayer, and what we see is they did pray, didn't they? Like, twice they prayed. Prayed for daylight, prayed over the food. But what if that's all that they did? And I want to be careful here that you hear this, because I do believe that far too often I hear people use prayer as a spiritualized excuse to do nothing. You ever have anyone come to you and say, hey, would you mind doing this? Or you've asked somebody to do you a favor, and and they respond with, well, I'll pray about it, right? You know what that really means, don't you? It means I don't want to do it. I don't have enough guts to tell you I don't want to do it, so I'll make it look spiritual and just tell you I'm going to pray about it, right? That's that's what that can mean. And if you say that honestly, I'm not making fun of you, that you could be the one honest person who says that. Or you ever have somebody say, oh, I'll pray for you, and you're like, nobody prayed for you. They didn't pray for you, right? You ever did somebody? Oh, I'll pray for you. And then you totally forget all about it. Then you see him a week later, and you go, I think I was supposed to pray for Dear God, please be with Bob. Hey, Bob, good to see you. I've been praying for you. Right? That's what. Sometimes we can baptize an action and make it look spiritual with all those sorts of things. And here's what I'd say to you. Prayer and spirit-empowered action is what changes the world. It is prayer and spirit-empowered action as they come together that changes the world. That there's a tension between living and I'm completely dependent on God, which is true. I am in complete dependence on God in this moment. Like, especially in your shipwreck, I'm completely dependent on God. And there's a tension with, and at the same time, I'm going to do something. Like, we're going to combine these things together of prayer and divine inspired action to change the world because those are the two things that always do change the world. John Stott, when he was thinking about, you remember in Matthew 25 where Jesus has that passage where he says, you saw me and I was hungry, 
and I was thirsty, and I was prisoned, and I was naked, and you did something or didn't do something about it. John Stott wrote one time a, a little, a little kind of critique and poem of what he thought most Christians did. He said this, he says, I was hungry, and you formed a humanities group to discuss my hunger. And I was in prison, and you crept off quietly to your chapel to pray for my release. I was naked, and in your mind, you debate, debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me the spiritual love of God. I was lonely, and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I'm still very hungry and lonely and cold. How do we combine these two things? I'm completely dependent on God, and so yes, pray with we're going to do something because our shipwrecks depend on it. One of my favorite stories, and I don't have time to go into it, but you should go home this week and read the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite stories of a national shipwreck, and out of it, one man who combined both prayer and faith and action together to do amazing things. I mean, the, the story is that this, the city of Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem are totally destroyed. When Nehemiah hears it, he's so heartbroken by this situation, but not to the point of paralysis, but rather to the point of having action and doing something. So it begins with prayer. I mean, Nehemiah just immediately starts talking to God. Nehemiah's job at the time is he's a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. So he goes in kind of depressed, and King Artaxerxes notices, this dude's never depressed. What's the matter? My hometown, my homeland, is without its wall, and it's torn to pieces. And so he gets permission, and he develops an entire plan. But the entire time, what you'll see in the book of Nehemiah is, Nehemiah is always talking to God, and he's always working his plan. He's talking to God, and he's working his plan. And that will be, for us, the key in surviving our shipwrecks. We're talking to God, and we're moving forward. We're making a plan, and we're acting quickly. So your marriage is a shipwreck. Well, in the midst of it, here's what, I, here's what I experience. For most people, in the midst of their shipwrecked marriage, they resign themselves to, yeah, that's just the way it is. And they begin to get all bitter about it and resentful, and they're angry. Or a lot of people, they just move to apathy. And did you know you could live in that for years? Like, really, I mean, you could be in a terrible marriage and just day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, same old thing, and just that's the state that you find yourself in. Now, you could stay there being paralyzed by the shipwreck that was supposed to be your marriage, or you could make a plan and take action. You could do things like, no, no, I'm not settling for this, and I'm not going under like this. We're going to get away for a weekend, and we're going to talk honestly, maybe for the first time in years, about the things that each of us are thinking, but not saying out loud. And, and on that plan, we're going to go see a marriage counselor, and in that plan, we're going to go read a book on healthy communication and how we can do that. And on that plan, we're going to have a date night once a week, and we're going to turn off our cell phones and our kids and our schedules and Facebook. And who knows, at the end of the night, we might even have sex, because Nike says, just do it. So... <laughs> Come on, married people. This is God's idea, I'm telling you. <laughs> and we're going to figure out each other's love languages. Did you know that we all have things that are, that are greatly interpreted by us as love? And we tend to transfer what our love language is on other people. And so you could be buying gifts for somebody because that's your love language. And they're thinking, I don't care about these gifts. I just need words of affirmation from you is what I want. So we're going to learn that about one. Did you know we all have emotional needs and we can learn what are the emotional needs of our spouses? I mean, we can commit ourselves to that. And we can commit on our plan that we're going to pray together. And in the midst of it, I'm going to release my anger and my resentment and my bitterness. And instead of going under in this shipwreck that I'm calling marriage, I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to do something. 
I'm not going to curl up in a ball anymore as if, well, it's just the way. I was supposed to be there, and I'm still getting there. Are all these things going to work? Maybe not. Listen, all the decisions that Sir Ernest Shackleton didn't work either. Maybe the book is terrible. Maybe the marriage counselors are real dope. You know, they are out there. But we're going to keep moving forward. We're going to take action. Let me tell you, this is the primary advantage to a shipwreck over a sucker punch. Like a sucker punch, like a bus comes out of nowhere. You don't have time to develop a plan. It just, boom, there it is. Now you don't know what to do in life. Perhaps take advantage of this one thing that a shipwreck offers you, and it's this, time. It might not be a lot of time, but you at least have some time to do something, to make some plan, and to move forward. So you've got $26,000 of credit card debt, and you are up to your ears and all other sorts of financial issues. You've got creditors calling you. You, have, you could either just cower up in a little ball and cry all night about it, or you could take assessment of where you're at and make a plan. You could do something. You could take action. So your health feels like a shipwreck to you. Like you keep meeting with doctors, they keep giving you bad news after bad news. I would simply say this. What is in your ability to do? What can you do to take action now? And what is still in your control? And in that, instead of going under, we're going to do something about this. And I know at this point you're probably thinking, this sermon doesn't feel very spiritual, to which I'd say, that's my point. If you don't expect from a sermon to do something, but rather, well, we're going to spiritually pray. I mean, come on, I mean... God's calling us to pray and to be dependent on him and at the same time to do something, to let prayer and action come together as our best chance of surviving this shipwreck. And if you find yourself this morning in the midst of a shipwreck, and I know this is easy for me to say, but don't be paralyzed in the shock and confusion of it. And Listen, it is a shipwreck. I'm not trying to pretend it's not really there. It is. What I'm saying to you is that the one who is in you can empower you with a spirit of boldness and courage to rise up even in the face of shipwrecks and to move forward, to be able to say, in spite of everything that's going on around me, I'm not going to just lay here and take this. I will finish the race that God has given to me. I will cross that finish line. It might not be how I wanted it to be or in the timing I originally had set out, but I will not be thwarted. And if I fall down, I'll get back up again. And if that bearer is in front of me, I'll jump over that as well. And I will, make, I will not quit. I will not give up. I will not allow myself to be swept under or carried by forces that don't have my good in mind. And by God's grace, I'm going to make it to there. It might be different than what I thought setting out but I will not be deterred. I'll assess right now where I'm at, and I'm going to formulate a plan, and by God's grace, I'm going to take action. And we'll do this all while still being completely and totally dependent on God. But it'll be these two things, prayer and action, that in my mind will be a significant force to behold, a spiritually unsinkable grit and determination that we will receive from God all that he has in store for us, and we won't let anyone, including Satan, thwart us from that venture. This is what we hope in the midst of all of our shipwrecks. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and are grateful that you are a God who rescues. You are a God who saves. And so we come to you with two things on our heart and mind. One is this reality that we know in the midst of a shipwreck, we really are completely dependent on you. And so we don't say anything flippantly, Father, by way of action as if it cuts you out. We know without you, we can do nothing. Yet at the same time, we believe that you are calling us to do something. And so we ask that you would, by your spirit, give us the wisdom and the knowledge and the grace to see exactly what that action is. I pray right now for anyone who's in the midst of their shipwreck that even now you begin stirring in their heart and mind a plan by which they walk out and do something for your glory. And so in that we'll say we'll rise up out of these ashes. 
that we will rise up and we will do something. We want to finish the race you set before us. Help us to do that for your glory's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.